Welcome back, folks, to the next edition of Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host, Anthony Tyler, and got another solo episode coming up for you. Um, and before we get into it, it'll be about serial killers. I know um, it's not the Halloween season anymore, but, you know, it's just what this show is. We're just going to talk about some more crazy shit. Um, and then, honestly, we're going to liven it up a little bit after this. I think to let you in on the inner process, we're going to get back to some alchemy and some esotericism, probably with some guests we've seen before but haven't been on lately. Um and then um, I got, you know, uh, on the last episode with uh, Miguel and Vance, old Moondog, I showed some appreciation, as I do with, I think, just about every one of my guests. Um, and just wanted to reiterate, I really do appreciate all the, 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 the sense of community that I've found since I started doing not just the podcast, but writing the books and doing guest spots in other places. Um, I've made a lot of genuine friends. Uh, just people that I would have truly never come in contact with had I not started doing this stuff. And that's what it's really all about. Um, not that I don't want to make some money. That'd be great. But truly, it, you know, this is, a, this is a small show that's growing. And I have some sponsors that are related to the, uh, the Fringe FM. But I'm not raking in the cheddar from this. This is a very DIY thing that I'm doing for fun and seeing where it goes. Um, and if there is any money to be made, it would really be to facilitate this process. You know, the, it, whatever money I make just allows me to commit to this more. So, um, and the reason I bring up money is because you don't have to donate. This is free, but Hey, if you're listening and enjoying it, why don't you go rate the show on whatever app that you're listening to it on? Um, that does help a little bit. And, you know, if you, you could just put five stars if you want to, I, I, I guess I would uh, haggle for four, but, and, and pander for four, <laughs> but I'm not going to go lower than four. I'm not going to pander for three or less. Okay. So, and uh, you know, you don't have to leave a, a written review, but if you want to, and you don't want to put any effort, you know, just list a show that you enjoyed episode 20 or whatever. And if you really want to donate, at some point we will be developing a Patreon. Uh, so I don't know if there's going to be bonus episodes or what other uh, shit is going to be involved, but that we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Right now, I'm just enjoying the process. For real. Um, on that note, I did want to give some shout outs. Um, most of the listeners coming from the US, but there's a steady amount coming from the United Kingdom, Australia. Sweden, Norway, Czech Republic, Canada, Peru, Denmark, and Serbia. Those are the top 10 um, in that order. Uh, so, and actually, I guess like, I don't know what the term would be, but per capita, whatever. Um, doing pretty well in Peru and the Czech Republic. So shout out to you guys. And Peru, I've mentioned you a couple times on the program before. Uh, you guys have been with me throughout the beginning and every so often I drop off and it's like everyone just wants to build up a few episodes to binge them or something. And then I jump back up on the charts in uh, the philosophy sections. So um, thank you. And, and don't forget about uh, divemind.net. That's the website. 
You can find a lot of uh, tidbits, some guest spots, some excerpts from my book and my books, Dive Manual, Empirical Investigations of Mysticism and Hunt Manual, a 21st Century Demonology and Fortiana. And for those of you that don't know, Fortiana, unexplainable phenomena, essentially. So I got um, a sizable amount of content out there. And you can support me in a variety of ways, but no pressure. I'm just happy that you're here. This has honestly been a lot of fun. And uh, today, now that I've gotten some pleasantries and whatnot out of the way, this solo episode is just going to be um, reading an excerpt from my book, Hunt Manual. It came out on Halloween last year, 2021. So, and this is kind of on the heels of some things that have been brewing uh, throughout the conversations that I've had with other people. So it just seemed like a nice fit. So here is your, the Halloween hair of the dog for you. And yeah, um, the hunt manual real quick, just to set up the tone, because it's just going to be excerpts. So we're going to dive into some of the context not to sound pretentious, but it's like a meta narrative where it's sort of a, Socr- a Socratic dialogue where I'm taking you, the listener, through this trounce through the wilderness hunting thing, trying to survive because you stumbled there with amnesia. Um, and it's all kind of subtle. There's not a whole lot of time spent developing the situation. It just, as it unfolds, you learn more. And um yeah, so details of the woods and whatnot, now you know. And I'm just going to go right into this, all right? Let's do it. I hope you enjoyed the fresh air of the coast, because it's time I tell you some more about some of the most devious minds out here in the woods. The ones who have learned a little bit about the hunt, but have chosen to use it on other humans instead of hunting their demons. This is, unfortunately, more common a practice than it should be, and many are aware of this dilemma thanks to the wave of true crime interests found in today's media. In some sense, when we lash out at others unintentionally, we're hunting other humans. Uh, There are, are those rare circumstances where we must stand up for ourselves and what we believe in. But as I've shown you, standing up for yourself in an act of self righteousness could potentially be that thing that lets the devil through the door. Your uncompromising faith in your own goodness could be the evilest thing about you. In particular, I'm speaking of cult leaders and serial killers. And let's start by straightening some things out from the start. We cannot say that a serial killer is possessed, at least not as a rule of thumb. This is more likely to be a cheap, gimmicky first card pulled for a legal defense while they think of something better. But on a case-by-case basis, possession isn't entirely off the table, and this will become increasingly clear the more I elaborate. See, the fact of the matter is that even those truly possessed are not walking anomalies constantly. They have rashes of it. In the annals of true crime heavy-hitting serial killers, it's at least possible that one of these would have shown some certain anomalous symptoms to an eye that was paying attention. But they would, I assume, have to be killed before making it to custody because I don't see how any of these people couldn't have shown strange anomalous activity in custody without some reports unless there was a cover-up. But you could play that game with anything. Uh, It is curious food for thought, but possession is not my angle with the serial killer, not directly at least, for it will certainly remain as a heavy peripheral. My direct focus is obsession. Poltergeist and other activities can certainly uh, 
be fit under the idea of demonic oppression. And the possession is quite self-explanatory to us all. Obsession is understood well enough, but the extent of its usage might not be so commonly considered. Obsession is the dark underbelly of passion. When passion is fueled by neurosis, fear, and hate, it becomes obsession. A passion that takes over someone's life helps them for the better overall. They might have to sacrifice things for their passions, but there is a greater context of development, catharsis, and self-improvement. Obsession is not merely binging a television show or dutifully smoking only one brand of cigarettes. Obsession is a notion that has completely overtaken you, a notion that you have completely succumbed to, almost like a prey to predator. There is no longer a fight in that moment. It is one steady stream of intense, magnified, and projected neurosis that could very well apex in a psychotic episode or more. Truly, when it comes to the serial killer, we don't even need a supernatural angle, which makes it all the more curious when we often find them in these cases still. And this is something I will tell you about more momentarily, but first, it's necessary to emphasize that the pattern of habits of the serial killer certainly seem to follow these aforementioned pathways of nervous system overload, followed by neurological gateways to states of consciousness that the average human is very unfamiliar with. And stepping out for a moment, um, some of the legwork involved here that you can find throughout the book and that I've dabbled in with episodes, um, the episode, A 21st Century Demonology, talking a little bit about possessions, but mostly poltergeists. And, you know, throughout discussion with other guests, um, we have laid the groundwork. Also, the image of the UFO, you can find a little bit there, um, laying the groundwork for many cases of seemingly non-physical, you know, whatever it be, ghosts, whatever, um, creating physical reactions, creating non-physical causes, creating physical effects. How about that? Um, and we don't know what all is happening there. And I've gone into some lengths to show that there is a psychological component there that we don't fully understand. Uh, but we can at least see that the process is a thing. It, uh, truly, these days, if you want to be a skeptic, uh, just do a little more digging. It's perfectly fine to be skeptical all throughout the process. But knowing that things happen that are out of our realm of understanding that we could still observe it's just a part of the human experience. And, you know, the more outlandish things also fit into that. So, all right, let's keep going. It's a long story short. If this sounds outlandish to you, just do dig a little deeper, potentially into some more episodes. <laughs> Indeed, a 2012 scientific report entitled Serial Killing Follows Predictable Pattern Based on Brain Activity stated, quote, Serial murder activity can be explained by a model describing neuronal firing in the brain, very similar to the model that describes the distribution of intervals between epileptic seizures. It's fascinating. Law enforcement behavioral divisions have always noticed the cyclic nature of the serial killer and how eventually this cyclic nature seems to work its way into overdrive and put the serial killer in a sort of frenzy or berserker state of consciousness that tends to end in their capture. Not only does it fit a similar model to epileptic events in the brain, but it also classically seemed to serve as a dark metaphor for substance addiction. You know, I think we've all heard that a time or two. 
as well, we could take it a step further and consider the amount of damage done to the frontal cortexes of so many serial killers. However literal or heuristic it may be, it seems that the frontal cortex plays some sort of role as an antenna to the collective consciousness through empathy and deep structural roles that the mirror neurons play in the human condition. And if we can speak of the temporal role, <laughs> and if we can speak of the temporal lobe's role in all of this, then things wouldn't be complete without also mentioning a variety of injuries that the serial killers and cult leaders have received to their frontal lobe, whether it be John Wayne Gacy being hit in the head with an arching playground swing as a child or Henry Lee Lucas's mother smacking him in the head with a wooden board and leaving him comatose in the corner for three days. As we have seen with some of history's greatest minds, sometimes anomalies to the temporal lobe, which is just below the frontal cortex, could be very beautiful, albeit taxing and arduous in any case. And so it would only make sense that those with minds already wrung with trauma and abuse would have particularly troubling results from the effects of the seizures, like in the case of Annalise Michelle. And another aside real quick there, there are minds throughout history like the writer and philosopher Dostoevsky, you know, he was, he, he had epilepsy probably of the temporal lobe. And there are others that people have gone into um, to research and deduce whether or not, like what kind of ailments classical people were suffering from. And there are a lot of people like, you know, some people even say Dante who wrote the divine comedy and um, you know, so many other people were suffering from a form of epilepsy some of the, you know, it's definitely conjecture, especially the more you get into like the further back in history, but there's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, when, especially of the temporal lobe, it creates an activity that is characterized as um, a quasi psychedelic, religious, mystical experience. And it's very taxing and it's, you know, it's a debilitating medical condition, but as a weird byproduct, it stimulates this part of the brain that is known for doing these things and it can be very dark or very powerful and thought provoking, you know, in, in almost a cathartic way. Um, and in this case, the not cathartic way. Okay. So let's get into this a little more in the case of Annalise Michelle, as I went into a little bit in episodes prior, um, that's one of the most prolific and terrifying and documented cases of possession that any skeptic should really look into because it's strange no matter which way you slice that pie. And of course, we can hardly relate smacking your head against a wall to an epileptic seizure, especially when they are often hitting two different lobes in the brain. But if each of these can have dramatic effects alone, then both together would likely be disastrous. And such is the case with the brain of the Night Stalker, the infamous Richard Ramirez. Curiously, Ramirez was diagnosed with genuine temporal lobe epilepsy after multiple head injuries as a child, some of which being intense blows to the front of his head. And while it's fair to say that he learned or that he leaned into his own Satanism angle after he was caught, it wasn't only after he was caught. It's clear that Ramirez not only enjoyed scaring people by drawing pentagrams on his hand in court and on his victims, but that he was genuinely fascinated with the dark side of metaphysics dating back to his early adolescence when he was taken under the wing of his barbarous war criminal of a cousin that had just returned from Vietnam. And then there was Arthur Shawcross, the Genesee River Killer. Shawcross was obsessed with vivid and horrific fantasies, speaking of horrific things, 
that he had done in Vietnam, which turned out to either be lies, fantasies, some sort of false memories, or maybe a combination of all three. Either way, his tall tales of Vietnam included the brutal slaughters of men, women, and children, uh, which sometimes included the uh, rape and ritual torture that echoed medieval horrors and jungle black magic. Believe it or not, this man actually had a cyst on his temporal lobe. Serial killer Andrei Chikatilo, the butcher of Rostov and one of Russia's most notorious murderers, was also known to have epilepsy throughout his life. And this man was especially sadistic, having the sort of cleanser, quote unquote, complex that killers sometimes operate with. Chikatilo seemed to believe, if you take his word for it, that he was ridding the streets of harlots and adulterers and doing a service for the greater good. He was never particularly interested in anything occult, but he was eerily known to be a reasonable and even quote-unquote loving family man. And he was also known to cut the eyes out of his victims because of an old Russian superstition that the final moments before death were forever spiritually burned into the retinas of the deceased. Among others documented to have had a history of seizures, we have John Wayne Gacy, who had a fascination with alternate personalities throughout his or through his clown work and later paintings. Gacy even went so far as to say that he donned a more nefarious persona that he liked to call Jack Handy. Excuse me, not SNL Deep Thoughts, uh, Jack Hanley, a name that he had stolen from a police officer. It's also an interesting additional note that Gacy always chose to make his clown paint sharp without any circles like a regular clown, giving him a much more nefarious appearance and also just a terrible look for a working clown. And then there's David, son of Sam Berkowitz, who as well reportedly had seizures as a child. Now, Berkowitz is an especially controversial character because the horror of his crimes aside, he's also flopped on his story quite a bit. It's fair to say that at this point, David Berkowitz will tell his interviewers mostly what they'd like to hear. But there are certain points of record that we know despite his wishy-washy nature. He wasn't possessed. That seems to be an elaborate and fantastic series of stories that he told. But there's no question that Berkowitz had some bizarre fascinations with the occult and that he was deeply troubled. There is also evidence to suggest that Berkowitz did not act alone. And while this is a highly contentious topic that has a great deal of fluff around it, it does appear possible that at, at the least there were three sons of Sam. But this is a bit of a different story. Regardless, it's a rather strange cherry on top that Berkowitz has since become a born-again Christian in prison, doing his own form of preaching, where some are even proclaiming him as something like an honorary disciple in a true cult-like fashion. Again, while I don't think I could tow a line of Berkowitz actually being possessed, he is a strong case for genuine, diagnosable, archetypally devilish obsession like the rest of them. The infamous duo killers, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, were both known for a history of seizures, and like many others on this list, they had a bizarre fascination with the occult, although not a studied fascination whatsoever. This one is, by its nature, less compelling than the others, since their crimes and personalities were not particularly fascinated with the metaphysical or symbolic, but after the two were captured, they spun elaborate stories of being assassins for a satanic order full of black magic, human sacrifice, trafficking, and drug running. 
All of this was, of course, highly unsubstantiated. And in this case, it truly seemed like tall tales spun to receive favors from officers while in custody. Actually, the tales seemed so fake that George H.W. Bush pardoned Henry Lee Lucas from death row. And this is a bit of a different story, uh, a weird one that many people like to take down conspiracy theory rabbit holes. And I can't exactly blame them there. I mean, it, it seems to make sense. Um, if he was lying, but it's still pretty weird, pretty weird. Uh, cause he was definitely a terrible guy either way. Uh, there was many, many crimes that they knew he was, he had committed, but in any case, the story of the black hand spun by tool and Lucas became big headlines and large pits where taxpayer money was sunk all to get extra food and notoriety for these two low life killer drifters that were rotting in prison. Like son of Sam, In his talk of the devils, the stories of Toole and Lucas played their part in the modern surges of satanic panic that stir within the Western public. Serial killer Danny Rawling, the Gainesville Ripper, was one of the men in true crime history that blamed his killings outright on a demonic entity that possessed him called Gemini or Yenad, which is just Danny backwards. Um, At different times, he called them both. Well, I certainly don't buy this because of how preposterously the context is put together in his defenses. I think there is a reasonable case to be made about obsession here, like with the other names at hand. In other words, this man reminds me a great deal of Berkowitz, not only in their story and excuses, but in their particularly milquetoast, quote unquote, woe is me personalities. More than most other serial killers, Berkowitz and Rawlings somehow saw themselves as victimized, tortured souls that had no choice but to kill people. And they tried very hard to sell this defense story of, oh, shucks, I'm just as surprised as you are. You really shouldn't blame me. Truly, these attempts at defense and deflection only made the public hate them even more. Uh, for, but for a bit of a turn of context, both Rawling and Berkowitz were born Geminis. And though you might roll your eyes at the mention of astrology, keep in mind the heuristic nature that science sprang from and how astronomy truly came from astrology. As I've told other people in other places, it is not hard to see that there are bits of astronomy left sandwiched between some of the fluff we see today. And in any case, astrology isn't a science. It's a philosophy of science. Uh, So with that in mind, it's still rather interesting to find that Gemini is reportedly the Zodiac signed to boast the most serial killers, including other infamous names such as Samuel Little, um, Jeffrey Dahmer, Arthur Shawcross, Kenneth Bianchi, uh, Peter Curtin, Peter Sutcliffe, Richard Chase, and many more. I'm not exactly sure how substantiated this claim is, and some people contest it, but it does appear that the majority of the most notorious serial killers are Geminis. And that's not where the Gemini interest ends, because Danny Rawling claimed that a great deal of his inspiration came from the movie The Exorcist 3, where in the movie, a demon takes possession of a serial killer called the Gemini Killer. And not only was Rawling fascinated with this movie, but so was Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, we will discuss the peculiarity of Gemini symbolism in true crime more soon. But while he's been mentioned, let's consider Dahmer a little bit further. And let's take a real quick break before we do that. And uh, I'm not throwing shade at Gemini's. I'm just saying there is a little bit of a a true crime undercurrent that has Gemini vibes. So Gemini's, they definitely get wild. (laughs) Um, 
All right, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler. Stay with me. We'll be right back. Yeah. Yo, it's like he's living in Cybertron. Uh, the homocycles and impersonators, what? vipers and them terminators, uh, fighters with the thirst for yeah. papers. Where robotic crime is common in the search for uh, wages. Despite the times that we find ourselves immersed in pages, uh, trying to find a method to see his rhyme reflected. Design is faded, calculated rhyme that I suggested. The only factor in the climb is the time invested. But these are after in this prime that got his mind invested with the evils. This kid that got himself uh, addicted with that lethal shit injected uh, with the needles. Yeah. Now he's well connected with the weasel. Neglected by his peep, disrespected and rejected by his equal son. They put him on blast. He walks the gravel on his own. They say he's just a brat to travel down the wrong path. So every night this kid fights with his like yeah. His conscience tries to tell him that he's righteous. But my nigga, we recognize face mask, blurred and slurred words and fake chants, he maps the turf to observe the snake tracks, that's left behind by all the friends that lied and swore the sets beyond just riding, but this promise got him sticking out his neck without them, all alone, like he was thrown in out of space, without a place to call a home, roaming, now he's going cold and in time that sent him in the world potent, cause now the windows to their souls opened, so there's no coping, they say it's only the eyes that let you see the fraud beyond the disguise, yo he's on to these spies, evil shape shifters, flakes and innate drifters, trying to Get him for all the gold that he hides But he loses hope the more that he tries I see them holding prone to the dome Of a clone he's known to despise huh. So here's a quote for the wise Be advised, see through the scope that he implies And realize that we recognize The Natural Born Alchemist podcast is a podcast that covers topics like alchemy, shamanism, psychedelics, anarchism and philosophy. Join Alex, that's me, and a multitude of guests on a quest to discover the nature of reality, of spirit and of consciousness. Each episode will also introduce you to new music that you might never have heard before. You can find the podcast on most platforms. Simply search for Natural Born Alchemist or go directly to naturalbornalchemist.com. There you'll be able to find all the social media links as well. Freedom is in the mind. 
Musicians experience a lot of frustration with music marketing and promotion. They have no idea how to get their music heard, and they're spending hours sending emails, making phone calls, and hitting up their friends to promote them. With our industry-powered digital marketing platform, we can set up your media plan in minutes. Our team will automatically distribute your music across all the best channels, so you can focus on actually making the music. Submit your music today on our website at mymusicpromoter.com. That's mymusicpromoter.com. Listen, as we explore the mysteries of the universe, the unknown, high strangeness, consciousness, and our human potential, Lighting the Void is an eclectic program that strives to ignite the late night with stimulating conversations. Join us on The Fringe FM. of people are having paranormal experiences with ghosts, demons, shadow people, dogmen, Bigfoot, and more. Their stories need to be told, and they are being told. Dark Waters, the renowned storyteller, invites you to join at IamDarkWaters.com. For just a few dollars a month, you can listen to some of the most hair-raising and compelling stories on the planet. You'll have access to real-life stories told by Dark Waters, thousands of hours of content. Their encounters are being told and told by the best at IamDarkWaters.com. Listen to stories like The Rabbit Man, The Dogman Encounter in Silas, Alabama, The Man with No Face, The Other Woman, A Day Ahead of the Devil, Dogman Murder in Hurricane Ida, even a story of someone trying to kill a dogman. Louisiana Water Demon Stories. Sign up today and become a member at imdarkwaters.com. That's imdarkwaters.com. And welcome back, folks, to Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm still me. And we are talking about serial killers, and there's going to be cult leaders in here as well. And we're also talking about metaphysics, archetypal psychology, what we can say about demonic presence from a skeptical point of view in these kinds of cases. And we're just going to dive right back in. Although he was not known to have a history of epilepsy, in terms of occultism, he admitted Dahmer... Uh, that he was in the process of making a large altar of a dozen complete human skeletons that he was attempting to collect and maintain. It was one of his many hobbies, along with drilling holes into the heads of unconscious gay men on his couch just before he poured acid into said drill hole. When he asked whom the altar was being made for, Dahmer replied, seemingly in earnest, that it was for himself. But speaking of demonology, the serial killer talk takes a decidedly left turn to look at the clear-cut, outwardly healthy Ted Bundy, who is known at times to comment on the quote-unquote entity that he said he was always surrounded by. He never leaned on it in his criminal defense, uh, but probably because he knew it wouldn't get him very far, but he spoke of it from time to time, and it very evidently echoes the notice of demonic, or the notion, rather, of demonic obsession. This is even something that has been loosely touched on in some of the more recent documentaries done on this killer. Bundy said he had to drink an egregious amount of alcohol before his hunts to, in effect, commune with this entity and help cultivate his obsessions in, in a focused, altered state of consciousness. 
something that Dahmer and other killers are known to claim. And yes, as callous as it may be, Bundy and these other killers truly were hunting. There's no other way to describe it, and it is truly as disturbing as a premise can be. For Bundy, it almost sounds as if he was trying to summon this thing in a roundabout, archetypal, diabolical sort of way, rather than something like a clear-cut possession. Perhaps this could be said about some of the other names here as well, something like the flap of a butterfly wing. And while you could surmise it was something Bundy said to gain attention, it didn't help his case to begin with, and he didn't even present a hard defense with any of this in mind. It was a bit more ancillary, uh, like a bizarre appendix piece to it all. Bundy emphatically claimed it was much more sophisticated than mental illness, and he certainly was never diagnosed with any mental illness other than psychopathy and extreme narcissism. I mean, there might be some smaller ones in there, but they, he was never like, there's no schizophrenia, you know what I mean? Bundy once stated to an interviewer, what began to happen was that important matters were not being rearranged or otherwise interfered with by this voyeuristic behavior, but things were postponed or otherwise rescheduled to work around hours and hours spent on the street at night and during the early morning hours. And as the condition develops and its purposes or its characteristics become more well-defined, it begins to demand more time of the individual. There's a certain amount of tension, struggle between the normal personality and this psychopathological entity, this condition inside him, this is Bundy speaking in third person, uh, seems to be competing for more attention, a point which a point would be reached where we'd had all of this, this reservoir of tension building, building and building. The tension would be too great and the demands and expectations of this entity would reach a point where they could uh, not just be controlled. It might all be an elaborate tale, but it's curious. Bundy certainly used this entity as fodder for other poor examples of his corruption, like when he coupled it with his addiction to porn, quote unquote. But the entity itself was always something that seemed, perhaps most importantly, as perplexing to Bundy as to the people he spoke of it to. More recently, Alaskan serial killer Israel Keys, known for his fascination with Satanism, um, serial killer true crime lore, and his carefully hidden quote-unquote murder kit stashed around the U.S., also claimed to experience the same sort of vague entity that he heard Bundy describe in interviews. Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, the most corporate milquetoast Ned Flanders serial killer of all time, also made these same sorts of claims. And before moving on, while he doesn't uh, have much to add to the occultism of it all, I couldn't bring up Alaskan killer Ned Flanders' persona and the idea of a sadistic human hunt without mentioning Robert the Butcher Baker Hansen, who was known for abducting prostitutes in Anchorage, flying them to remote parts of Alaska, and hunting them like prey in the woods. Both Keyes and Hansen lived in the same areas I grew up in and frequented many of the places I'm accustomed to. I and many other Alaskans enjoyed the same hiking trails Keyes said he enjoyed, and Hansen baked cakes at a grocery store I've been to many times. And while Hansen was caught before I was born, Keyes was murdered while I was growing up. Excuse me, Keyes was murdering while I was growing up. He actually committed suicide in prison. 
And we couldn't talk about demonology, serial killers, and mental illness without briefly discussing the aforementioned schizophrenic Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, Joseph Callinger, the schizophrenic killer cobbler from Philadelphia, and Herbert Mullen, the Santa Cruz burnout that was schizophrenically convinced to sacrifice civilians to Yahweh to stop a catastrophic earthquake from turning California proverbially, proverbially into Arizona Bay. He was convinced that the burden had been placed on his shoulders after the end of the Vietnam War, which had subsequently been enough to slate Yahweh's bloodlust. Mullen's schemes and metaphysical concepts were very elaborate, albeit nonsensical. As for Joseph Callinger, the story is even wilder than Mullen's, in which Callinger was said to be chosen by Yahweh through his schizophrenic hallucinations to cleanse the world of evil and create the perfect shoe. And I'm not even joking about that. Sometimes the cleanse and the perfect shoe went hand in hand in Yahweh's or in Joseph's vision, especially towards the beginning. But eventually this ideal holy shoe became a backdrop for Yahweh and other lesser spiritual entities urging Joseph to cleanse the earth. The, uh, he eventually murdered and tortured several people, even getting his kids to participate in some of it. And then Richard Chase. The most well-known of these three genuine schizophrenic killers was a young man convinced of several personal maladies that did not exist, such as his skull falling apart inside of his skin, his stomach shifting upside down, pieces of his heart going missing, and more. In the case of his skull pieces, Chase semi-routinely sliced oranges and wrapped them in a bath towel around his head because, as he put it, the vitamin C would be absorbed through osmosis and keep his bones glued together or something like that. Um, of course, this would potentially be sad, especially since he was unmedicated at the time, uh, if not for the fact that he killed and defiled six people, including an infant that he cannibalized. Chase was convinced, ultimately, that the only way to fix all his medical issues was with blood, which he drank routinely and sometimes bathed in, as well as even injecting it into his veins at one point. Uh, not human, by the way, but the blood of a rabbit. While Richard Ramirez was often just clumsily attacking concepts he didn't like in his statements, he sometimes showed glimpses of a truly malevolent philosopher, once quoted saying, we are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Yes, I am evil. Not 100%, but I am evil. Evil has always existed. The perfect world most people seek shall never come to pass. And isn't this in many ways what I have been trying to impress onto you, my friend? Certainly, we all have the capacity for evil and the existential responsibility to discipline and transmute those aspects of ourselves before they harm. Ramirez and these other infamous serial killers caught a whiff of the existential metaphysical hunt that you and I are on right now, but they flipped it completely. They didn't see the devils within themselves first. They only saw them throughout the world and became the devils themselves. It would appear that in line with demonic obsession, these killers aligned themselves entirely with the hunt and sought vengeance on the world around them. It is quite true that in the vast majority of these serial killer cases, there is a misplaced sense of vengeance or cleanser mentality that the killer has. And these are oftentimes better explained as a sense of misplaced righteousness, even a completely inverted code of morality and ethics. Even in cases where there doesn't seem to be a warped and vengeful victim complex, like with Ted Bundy, uh, there was certainly always a level of profound psychopathic entitlement. 
in their eyes, when they weren't victims, they were either owed vengeance or owed the gratifications of their darkest desires, or both. With this in mind, I think it should practically go without saying that it's clear all of these killers should be punished and should never see the light of day. These men, despite any sort of strange activity inside of them, are guilty of their crimes and had every opportunity to go and seek help for their disturbing thoughts. Even with all the curious evidence that shows extraneous, perhaps sometimes anomalous factors surrounding the mindsets of these serial killers, they are no less culpable for their crimes. We are all human. And while he wasn't an outright murderer like Ramirez, a line given by Charles Manson from prison in 1988 touches this whole topic quite well. Well, say that I am all of these things that you think I am. Would you want to make me into those things? Do you need someone like that in your world? That's your judgment. The judgments you're making on this mirror, man, you got to carry. The deflective ravings of a madman? Yes. But behind the deflection, there's a twinge of realism to it. Manson knew that despite what he was, he was being used by the media for scare tactics. When it comes to headlines, the truth isn't always the main objective. And while Manson was certainly guilty of his crimes, he was also made into a boogeyman that was much larger than life and capable of hypnotizing his followers like a black magician. And this is just giving Charlie Manson far too much credit. He just happened to be the crab on top of the bucket in that little cult and was certainly a smoother talker than the average guy in his own way. Remember here that good and evil as we know them do not exist in objective reality, but they dictate our existence and therefore our relationship to reality. Good and evil are the faucet handles of our experience. They are agreements that we have made with the world around us because of deeply ingrained biological patterns indicative of forces of nature. Here, the age-old Christian golden rule comes into effect. Allow other things to flourish in ways that you did. And as long as we can all blossom and flourish without degrading the others, then there are no limits. Well, the limits are the other people's spaces. That's the thing. And speaking of the golden rule, how is one to treat another the same way they would like to be treated when that person has been beaten and traumatized their entire lives? The so-called golden rule would work so well because it speaks to the nature. The so-called golden rule works so well because it speaks to the natural humanity in us all. But when humanity is beaten out of us, the metrics become much different. You see, this rule is better described not so much as do unto others as you would have done unto you, but more, you implicitly do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. And you should take note of that to make sure there is enough altruism in that equation. Certainly, in a terrible, warped, horrifying way, the serial killer is doing unto others as they have usually had done unto them. They just had the altruism ripped out of them in one form or another. Or in the case like Bundy, we are not sure where the altruism went or if there was any inkling of it there to begin with. And that looks like that's about all the time we have for now, folks. Um, maybe at some point I will go and read the next chapter of the book that uh, is the same tone exactly. It's just flipped where it's mostly cult leaders and then a little bit of serial killers. Um, and, and then the esoteric archetypal implications in those stories and, and uh, characters. Anyway, I hope you liked that. Um, you know, go check out the book hunt manual. Uh, you can also read 
that very excerpt I read to you on my website, divemind.net, under the uh, little button, Serial Killers and Jung, because it's just the quickest way I can describe it is archetypes. And because there's a lot going on here. What, what do you say? It's not just serial killers and possession. It's not exactly serial killers and demons. It's not exactly serial killers and psychology. So, but, you know, so are serial killers being possessed? What are demons? You know, the archetypes. Um, I've laid groundwork in other episodes to elaborate what I think of demonology. You know, you could go check out the image of the devil and some of the other episodes, but suffice it to say, um, demons, it's not cut and dry in the way that people would like to think, but are there, un- is there unexplainable phenomena out there that seems to be malevolent at times? Yes. And there is divine aspects to other unexplainable phenomena, whether you want to get uh, religious with that, or just keep a sort of mystical outlook as I tend to, um, you know, you can't deny it. There's some, there's unexplainable phenomena is out there and where, whatever way you want to go about classifying that and understanding that in your own brain, uh, is up to you. But as I hoped I laid out fairly well in this, uh, excerpt here, there is definitely some of that unexplainable phenomena in true crime. Even we can't deny it. It's weird stuff. But anyway, that's going to sign me out for now, folks. Um, I hope you liked it. Uh, We'll have some more guests on soon. Don't forget, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler. Divemind.net. Go rate the podcast. Do it. Give me five stars or, you know, I guess four. I'll settle for four. (laughs) But seriously, uh, thanks for listening out there. Shout out to the Peruvians and um, um, everyone else on that list. Y'all take care. Let's cross through the conscious that haunts the splinter cell of darkness and stalk the inner hell. I'm lost in tossed up in the cell of coffin. Thoughts that's in the shell that blocks the inner realm. I'm logging, continuously jogging. We're trying to get the info to the next stop, creating me a tunnel with a set plot. My vision's full of red dots. We're trying to find a signal in the best spot. We're trapped inside the window with this desktop and a system full of numbers that makes up the components. The data that control the reveals living amongst us that is risen from the covers. It's obviously seen, which means it's dwelling above us because we're part of the machine that yeah. the audience can dream. They're telling every color, every part that's in the scene. Till we melt to one another and not be caught in the scheme the scheme in the sky the scheme that is obscene between me and i which means that if i seen the strings and the ties are revealing to the top screen the scene of reply does this mean i'm alive a conspiracy theorist indoctrinating the truth because it's never killing me spirit i intricately inherit and what the fuck is wrong with the people i'm a target they don't want me alone with the people it's garbage get back to what belongs to the people i know that i'll be gone in the sequel the sequel the sequel the
embracing Trying to make it in the age of information Feeling like a stranger in the face of innovation Should I think that I'm the smartest victim? Cause deep down I know that I don't want to partner with this heartless system At the same time I think you gotta hold on me The road to the truth is so foggy Got me searching through the internet Better been neglected Looking up some better methods to connect But I don't get them yet All my friends are gone lately They think I'm going crazy They say I'm going through a phase But it don't phase me Then my girl dropped the letter off at home And when I read it it said that I'm better off alone Am I wrong? I keep hurting the proof And I think that I'ma lose my mind Searching for truth But yo, I can't take it They say you can't advance without the basics There's a chance, kid I'm trying to make it out the matrix My thoughts can't stand still no more To the start, it's like I'm sorted through a landfill Wonder why a man kills I cannot conceal no more Yo, this, yo, this world doesn't feel real no more So I sit back Looking at this globe through a bubble The flow through its rolls Like a toad through a puddle It's a race And I'm trying to be controlling in its pace But the chase got me floating Through a moment in its space Am I insane? I'm involving a sensation With a slave brain And solving an equation With a tin brain And I the world's I've lost it. There's a thin line above love, I've been blind and frosty. Now I'm in a strange place I've never been in. Sending for grinning, sometimes it ends at the beginning. It's ingrained inside my memory, it's been stained. The chemistry of this pain has got me spinning. Walk with me, thought hit me, and it cost this time. Am I the only cat that lost his mind, or is it everyone else? There's people walking around with plenty of wealth, but not enough for them to send it myself. That's crazy. Listen, my vision is past hazy, I'm losing breath. You pick a life in insanity, well, I'm choosing death. You people got a lot of snoozing left. Now it's time to put this noose in neck. I'm gone. 